Geraldine Jameson interview, brought to you by Tinwald Mills St. John's. Hello and a very warm welcome indeed to my first programme in the new series. And I couldn't be more delighted to lead off with one of Britain's funniest comedians and certainly one of the most popular entertainers, who of course became a household name through the realms of television, hosting shows such as London Night Out, Wednesday at 8, Name That Tune, and of course the Tom O'Connor Show. Well, Tom, welcome to the programme. Nice to be back on the show. It's great to see you again, yes indeed. How are you? It's 25 or 26 years ago since we met. 1980, I know, and we don't look any different actually. It's of amazing, course, isn't no, it? No, I brought a photograph in just that only the listeners <laughs> can't see, but you and I can see. But unfortunately, we have altered a little bit. We have a little bit. I'm still wearing the suit. <laughs> and, it, and it still fits. <laughs> Actually, I must say, and this is very interesting to the listeners, that um, you were my very first guest. I think the pro- the, the, this programme, which is now the Geraldine Jameson interview, used to be called In Conversation, you know, That's wherever right. I would be in conversation with that, that Sunday morning. And you were very cool. I, I was the one who was nervous because they said it's her first show and I had nerves and you, did, and you <laughs> did the job. It was brilliant. Well, let's fill in for our younger listeners, perhaps, more than anybody else, really. Um, you were born in Bootle in Merseyside. Your father was a docker and it was Liverpool that you became a schoolmaster. Well, now, um, teacher turned comedian, but it was actually the, the uh, headmaster of the school who was sort of responsible, really, for, um, for, for why? I mean, for, for making you a comedian. Mm-hmm. I, it was a nice school. It was called St. Joan of Arcs in Bootle, and uh, our uh, geography teacher was uh, Anne Robinson's father, Barney. Good teacher he was, actually, um, geography and uh, music he did. And uh, I, I did a lot of stuff with the kids, and I was working in the, the uh, social clubs and what have you in the evenings and singing in the pubs. And the headmaster said, you know, you've got such a, a nice style of comedy. He said, and it's clean. Because even then, comics were overstepping the mark, they were using four-letter words and what have you. And he said, you know, there's got to be a niche for somebody who just goes on and does clean humour, looking at life, enlarging life a little bit. And he was my inspiration. In fact, he's the one who put me on Opportunity Knox. He was my sponsor. Yes, indeed. Before we get to Opportunity Knox, I mean, it was he who also said to you that, um, because children, especially in that area, I mean, they're not the easiest to actually, you know, retain their concentration and attention. And he used to say, apparently, never mind the algebra and the logarithms, just remember you're saving souls. It's true. His other one was, you know, we we only have them for so many hours in a day and then they're back in the, the wild world again and we lose them, you know, till tomorrow morning. And he was right. And, of course, he taught me the one thing, which, I mean, you, you, it's easy to spot if, you, if you're looking for it. Whatever you put into children, you get back. Yeah. You can get that response. We had them singing and playing the guitars and had a choir of boys of 16 who normally would have just been thugs on, on street corners, you know. Uh, in fact, one of, them, one of the groups formed themselves into a band called the Melody Makers, and they went on to, they're still playing, they're still touring the clubs in Liverpool. So he was, he was a good man, Steve Brown, he was a good headmaster too, and uh, it, it was glad, I was glad really because when I left teaching, it was a wrench obviously, but he left at the same time, so it wasn't like I was leaving him. The school was taken over, we went comprehensive as they used to say, and, uh, and I, I moved out and went in full time. But I mean, that was, must have been um, a great plunge for you, really, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Although I think you waited until you had, what, 12 months engagements in the diary? Well, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Not uh, too much of a gambler about you then, really. Well, true, Geraldine. Uh, it was 1972, and if you think back, uh, in those days, there were nightclubs everywhere. And uh, I had a full diary, and I was getting something like £1,000 a week in the clubs and £68 teaching. 
So it wasn't a gamble really, and uh, all I was all I was putting at risk was my graded post because I was deputy head. I would have, if I went back in a year's time, I'd probably lose that. But who cares, you know? And I didn't need to go back anyway, so I was, I was lucky. Really. But um, you were talking there about winning three separate shows on Opportunity Knocks. Mm-hmm. I mean, that must have been a record in itself, was it? It was. A comedian had never won the show on the viewers' vote. For the, for the youngsters who, who don't remember it, people used to be asked to send postcards in with the winner's name on. And uh, uh, comics had won in the studio, Les Dawson had won it and Freddie Starr, but nobody on the postal vote, and I was the first one. And then we won it three weeks running. And of course, when you think about that, if you go with the show you started on, the three you win is four, the one you lose is five, and the all winners is six. It was a mini-series. Well, it's a bit like the X Factor of today, would you think? Yeah. yeah. And of course, the big thing for me was, on show six, when I was... You know, just being uh, just being one of the, the many winners, like Lena Zavaroni and people. Bernard Delfont was in the control box, and he said, who's this guy? They said, he's a school teacher, maths and music, doesn't do anything blue, he's a comedian. He said, I'm looking for a man with a mathematical brain and a musical background for a game show, which was named that tune. So before I came off the set, I was a star. I didn't know. <laughs> but you were a singer originally, weren't you, actually, before you were a comedian? Yeah. So what sort of numbers would you be singing and so forth? Uh, country and Western. I used to do all the old uh, Johnny Cash, Johnny Cash. And, yeah, uh, Jim Reeves, Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson is right, and I yeah. and uh, I, I still do. I'm I'm still in Willie Nelson's fan club and uh, Glenn Campbell. You know Glenn Campbell. I, I I lobbied for years to get him on my show, and then and the people in London were saying, "Who is he?" I said, "He's the biggest star you've ever heard. He's fabulous." And he, he arrived, uh, by the time we got to Phoenix, he arrived at the studio and he'd had a skin full the night before. He looked really awful and he walked in. I thought, he's going he's to be bad news. And he walked in and I said, how are you, Glenn? And he said, ask somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> My hero. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about, um, you mentioned there, named that tune. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Bernard Delphont, you said that that was really his baby. It was his baby and uh, they brought him from America. They had tried three other people before me. They would never tell me who they were. And nobody's ever come up and said, by the way, I was one of the three. But they, they gave me a, a videotape of a man called Tom Kennedy, who was the American presenter. And it had every glitch you could think of was on the show. And I took it home and we played Name That Tune. And if you came to our house that day, you you were a contestant. We'd stand you in the corner and say, press the button, spin the wheel. And we went through all the songs. And I went in the following morning, having had no sleep. I'd just gone right through the night doing this thing. And they gave me a couple of real actors as, as contestants and it worked. And I was away. And of course, I mean, overnight, just a massive sensation. It was the first big show really where you could almost guarantee somebody would win a car. And in those days, what, 1975, six, to win a £5,000 car, which you could, you could buy a house for £5,000 then, you know. It was amazing. And it, it's really the big one. I mean, I, I did seven, eight years of Name That Tune. I did nearly 20 of Crosswits, but people remember Name That Tune more than Crosswits, yeah. which is amazing. It was a great tune, of course, literally. The, yeah. the theme tune was very good as well. But, I mean, all this happened, Tom, within a year, really, you know, of your television debut on Opportunity Knox. That's right. I mean... That's extraordinary in itself. It is, and they gave, they threw everything at me. You know, they gave me a series of half-hour comedy shows. They gave me Whose Baby Are You? This Is Your Life. I mean, you the Royal Variety. I did two Royal shows. What was it? What was That's funny? At the London Palladium. London Palladium. Yeah. I, the, the funny one about I've got a picture of it at home actually because your picture just reminded me. You know, bringing back the old days. I did I did a Royal Variety in Harrogate, uh, and then five weeks later I did the Palladium in London. 
And I, I, I met the Queen both times. And on the second one, I've got the picture at home. She's saying to me, same suit, Mr. O'Connor. She didn't. And I said, same jewels, ma'am. And she had the same jewels on. Isn't that great? <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a running joke with us ever since. You know. <laughs> so you haven't been knighted. <laughs> I should be, I should be. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what was terrific for you, though, which I think you, you really... Uh, well, you, you, you rated that very highly indeed was. Your, your work actually took you away from, you know, um, English-speaking uh, countries. Well, America, of course, does speak English, but they have a language all of their own, yes, don't they? Right. But you featured there at the prestigious Carnegie Hall in Manhattan. That was, that was probably the scariest moment in my life, that, because I'd worked to Americans before on cruise ships and in Britain. Uh, but I'd never actually gone to the home of, of, of Americanism in New York I mean, and, and Carnegie Hall. I mean, there are American artists much better than me who've never even walked past the place, and I was on the stage. When I was lucky, and your accent and, and my name give us all away, I went in with the Irish ticket. I mean, that's what I went. I went in with the Furies band. Oh, yeah. and, the, and the Irish Prime Minister was, was there, and he came on, and actually the Taoiseach, and he, he compared the show. And he said, good, good afternoon, everyone. You're going to love this guy. He's a you know, Liverpool Irish, family are from Kinsale, blah, blah, blah. I wrecked the place. But I tell you what was funny. There was an American chap, and he said to me, they don't know you. They've never heard of you. They're not really bothered whether they hear of you again. How are you going to start? I said, well, I was thinking of just walking on and saying, you don't know who I am, but can I just say it's a pleasure to be here? Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people say it's a pleasure to be here. They don't mean it. But I got a cab from the airport, and the way those fellows drive, it's a pleasure to get anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it got roars. I thought, oh, no, I'm in now. But uh, it, it was it was an f- amazing experience. And I mean, did they cope with your accent okay? Yes. I slowed down a little bit, mind oh. you. And I leaned a little bit on Liverpool. I did a couple of Beatles references, you know. But basically, uh, American humour is very similar to ours. It's, it's not quite as sharp, with respect, it's not quite as sharp as ours. They need to be hit slightly between the eyes. But once you learn that, it's easy, you know. But your success has not just been confined to television. In, in Cabaret, you starred at every major night spot in the country, the length and breadth, and I suppose most of all Blackpool. Blackpool was a big one. I did about uh, nine consecutive years there, summer seasons. Summer seasons. And when uh, we were talking about summer seasons, they really were summer seasons. Twenty-odd weeks, weren't they? I mean, one of my best seasons was on the Isle of Man here in, in the Gaiety Theatre, 75. We did, I think, about 20 weeks. Sold every seat every night. Incredible. But those, those were the days, and I, I did all those, um, all those lovely uh, summer shows and, and with, with proper, you know, a big band, 12-piece band, uh, 16 dancers, a juggler, a tumbler, uh, um, uh, duos, um, opera singers. I did a season with Moira Anderson, which was wonderful. That was in Blackpool. Uh, and, of course, the nightclub scene, everyone had a nightclub. Every, every city had a big nightclub. And I always remember that one of my biggest moments was um, actually working uh, Batley Variety Club in Yorkshire. And they said to me, you know, would you compare the show for the show? I said, that's fine. Well, I'd love to. And then Dana was on the show. Oh. It was good. And they had a bloke who was, I've never heard of him since, I'm happy to say. He was, <laughs> he was an Australian comedian. Now, I'm talking about 1978-9. And Aussie comedians, there weren't that many. I mean, we had, we had uh, Rolf Harris over, but he was more or less singing and doing all painting on the wall at the time. And this bloke was very funny, but very, very Australian orientated. And he just couldn't get through to this Yorkshire audience. And he, he got to the point where I thought, I'm going to have to go and get him off here because he's really he's swallowing his own tongue here. And he suddenly the light went on. You could see his eyes light up. And he, he went off and came back with a great big boomerang. I mean, I'm talking about my arm span, which is big. And he said to the audience, this is an Aboriginal boomerang. I'm going to throw it around the club. 
Now, if I throw this boomerang around the club, do you think it'll come back to me? And one Yorkshire voice said, it will if it hits me. (laughs) (laughs) And generally, that was the day I decided I can do more than just jokes in my act. I mean, now I tell, as you know, lots of true stories. And and if they're not quite true, they're they're 90% anyway. And it's great because people identify with that. They know you're not making it up. It really could have happened. Because, I mean, that's what uh, it's all about, really. Real life, observing real life. That's, that's right, where, you, where you get your material from, I'm sure. Right. I mean, because I, mean, you do, I know you do a lot of corporate functions, you know, both here and abroad, and your clients list includes many multinational companies. But you have to have this ability, don't you, to mix with and relate, really, to people from every station in life. Mm. We're talking now from the managing director down to the tea lady. That's right, and they're all there. They're all, you know, on, on a, a, bit, a big night that everybody's there. You probably sit with the managing director, but I, I do that. I do the networking thing. I fizz around the place, and you know what surprises me, and I know it surprises you, uh, are the people who are given a chance to have the meal with the people they're going to entertain, the company, and, and and get the gist of the room and feel the ambience. And they say we don't want to do that. We just want to walk in. And I say, well. I mean, you, you don't know what you're walking into. I mean, you could walk into a room where the boss has just fired somebody. You don't know. <laughs> but as if you're sitting there, at least you've got some some idea. Um, and, and of course, it's great because I, I learn as much as they do. I'm sitting having a meal with them. They're telling me about their business and the funny side of this, that and the other and references to it. We're, we've all got a common bond with golf. Uh, so it's, it's a night out for me. I mean, they're entertaining me for most of the evening. I stand up and do 50 minutes at the end. That's all. So you're really uh, in the premier division of after-dinner speakers. I'm very lucky, actually. Yes, it's um, it's good, and I work. I do at least two jobs a week after dinner speaking, which you know, uh, one in London for sure, and one maybe and and, and wage wise, it's excellent. I mean, it's the way to do it, um, and it, lots of things help. Uh, I don't do anything blue. I don't do anything racial, uh, and I don't do any. Well, the worst one now is ageist. I mean, these comedians are getting so into the old people and, and Zimmer frame jokes, and you think, oh no, and not just that's not just corporate work. You get I get a lot of cruise work where they send me out to a ship to pacify everyone because they've been upset by somebody else. You know, <laughs> you scream really. <laughs> well, you mentioned golf there yourself, and you're no mean golfer. I know you. But um, you took the literary world by surprise in 1992 when your first humorous golf book, I think this title is amazing, From the Wood to the Tees. I mean, that made the bestsellers list right away. I did. I, I, it was a fluke. I think it was, to be honest, I think it was a fluke. Did uh, you make up that title yourself? Uh, yes. Yeah. And the follow-up was called One Flew Over the Clubhouse. Because <laughs> that really happened. I knocked one over the clubhouse. There's but, another one, Eat Like a Horse and Drink Like a Fish. That's right. And I've got my, my Irish one now, which is called Follow Me, I'm Right Behind You. <laughs> 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 but the, the first golf one uh, it just took off and, and I, I rang up Robson's the publisher and I said how did I go and they said you sold 20,000 copies yesterday I can't believe it but you know how they tested the sales so they go around shops and they say to your shop how many did you sell today and, and then you know what you don't know they're coming it's like records and I got into the uh, the Times top three best sellers in the first day so once it's in there everyone buys it and we, we were number three that year of all books. The only two that beat me were uh, uh, Storm and Norman and Madonna. So it wasn't a bad, bad number no, three. But, uh, and you see, the thing with golf is, and I, I didn't realise this, every other home in Britain and the British Isles has something to do with golf in it. Whether they play it or they've got, they know a grandchild who plays it or Uncle Charlie used to, there's some relation to golf. So all these people who didn't, knew nothing about the sport were buying the book to give to somebody else, which is fine. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, 2000 saw you make your television acting debut. Um, I never want to avoid a challenge. You took on the serious role of Father Tom. Now, he was a Catholic priest in several episodes of that wonderful BBC series, Doctors. And it was really such a success that you're currently considering, I'm sure, other offers, you know, coming your way. Yes, I mean, Father Tom, it, it was amazing because he was, he, his name was Tom. He was a tall, grey-haired man, about 60-something, with a Liverpool accent. So I, I fell straight into that one, you know. <laughs> I beat Jimmy Talbot by three inches. And... Uh, uh, it, it was a good part to play. I learned so much. I can't tell you how much I learned. I mean, I've acted in pantomime, which isn't really acting. You, you're doing your show, basically, with a, with a frock on. But this one, because the cameras are so close and the acting is so very small, I mean, one slight head movement is as good as a shoulder turn uh, on a stage. And I had to learn to work very small, very quietly. I mean, at the, the, speed, the pace I'm speaking at now, this is about loud on TV. So you've got to ease right back when you, and you're almost whispering, you know. Mm. And the man who taught me all of that was uh, with Christopher Timothy because he was the big star when I joined it. He was the doctor. And, uh, all creatures great and small. Creatures, that's right. And, uh, and I, I was even there to the point where my curate ran away with the doctor's wife. <laughs> it's funny, she was a North of Ireland girl, you know, and a very religious family, and the mother wouldn't speak to her. She said, I'm only acting. She said, well, I can't believe you run away with a priest. She said, I'm not. <laughs> but uh, it, it was good. And we, we've had offers... That, I've had an offer to tour with a serious play, actually, and play a, a serious part, because they, they think I, I could probably be the counter character to who, who I am. Instead of Mr Jolly, I could really be a sinister Liverpool Mafia gangster. And it's so, no problem to you to remember all this, is it? No, no. I mean, I've got a photographic memory, which is brilliant. I've been very lucky with that one. I can, I can read a sheet of paper twice and know it. The hardest thing is particularly if you're doing something like a pantomime and you learn the script and you go in and they change it. That's the hard bit because you've got to learn what to forget. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I don't have that with the acting. I just walk in and, and with, not, not blowing anybody's cover. When you see a piece of acting on TV, it isn't the first shot they get. They probably take eight or ten. And they don't have more than one camera on most occasions. So they film you talking to me. Then over your shoulder, they film me talking to you and they edit it together. So by the time you've done it six times, you know what you're talking about. You're no stranger, across over here, the Isle of Man. I've caught up with you when you're, when you're literally a sellout again here at our Gaiety Theatre. But um, you used to come in your childhood, didn't you? And the whole family. I did. The whole family used to come here in the good old days when I was about, oh dear, five, six, seven, eight. And they were great times. We used to meet all our Irish cousins here then. And of course the place was hopping. And those were the days, as far as I can recall, when we never had a bad summer. There was no <laughs> rain, everyone was, it was sunny. I remember coming here when I was 16 or maybe a bit older. I should, maybe I was older because I had a few beers. I remember that. And at the time we were drinking Black Velvet, which was that Guinness and Cider mixed. I mean, well, the Oblivion lethal, Express. That's absolutely lethal. I fell off. Guinness off. and Champagne, I thought that was, Black yeah, Velvet. The, the other one's the Paul Man's one. <laughs> I fell off a horse-drawn uh, tram, I always remember, and I fell backwards uh, and I couldn't get up. Have you ever seen the Beetle on its back while I was like that? <laughs> Two fellas had to come and get me. But they were great days, they really were. Uh, and then who'd have thought in 75 I'd come back and do a summer season as top of the bill and that was a brilliant season the people were so kind and, and we, had, we did terrific business as well but I made so many friends which is why I'm back all the time now uh, what, what is your opinion of the state of um, entertainment generally in Britain today Tom? It's, uh, it's, it's in a very precarious state at the minute we're in a very, very dodgy position because we're seeing people entertaining on TV some of them can't sustain when they come on stage. You only get five minutes off them instead of half an hour or 40 minutes. 
we're losing all those lovely speciality acts we used to have, the jugglers, the, the magicians, and the, the tumblers and things. So I think we're, we're due for a sea change, hopefully a big shake-up soon. Television can help. Well, what about those reality shows? I mean, they're false, really, because they're not reality at all. Oh, sorry, I know. They, it's all fixed. They all fi- I mean, basically, they, they pick the kind of people they want to be half nutty, don't they? You stick them in the show and then get them to react. Well, I mean, you could do that in your house, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, I, mean, I, I said to somebody, I saw some of these talent shows, and the fellow said to me, what do you think? I said, Huey Green wouldn't have had these people on his show. He said, Huey Green wouldn't have had them in the audience. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> no, he, was a, he was a real character, wasn't oh, he? Yeah. yeah. He was, he was my best um, after-sales man I've ever met in my life because whenever you did something on his show, he would bring you back so the people would remember you. He'd just call you back and say, Tom, uh, how's it going? So, 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 so. I believe you found an act for me and I would announce an act. And it was all really to give me a bit of a shock window to, to, to push the name forward, you know. Do you think the people were more professional in those days? or? I think they were, yeah, not, not just more professional, they cared more as well. Uh-huh. You know, they, they, they didn't just bother the fact they made you a name. Like some of these shows now, like Big Brother, you couldn't name the winner before last, or the one before him. Whereas in those days on Up Knox, or that kind of show, you were brought back, you were given a vehicle to work from. There are hardly any vehicles now for these people, you know. Some very, very funny young entertainers, particularly comedians and comedians, and there's just nowhere to put them. But it's, it was the scriptwriters, of course, who made them. That's right. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, some wonderful script. I, I was lucky. I had Spike Mullins and Dick Hills. They were probably the two of the best in the business, you know. Mm-hmm. I still do all the material. Mm-hmm. Oh, Spike used to write things like he, he was, uh, uh, you could always tell the posh kids they, they wouldn't take a sweet off you if it had been in your mouth. You know? <laughs> Great lines. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> well, no regrets then at all that, um, you know, that you gave up the teaching and, and the serious business where you would have had a pension and all that. Anyway, you wouldn't have liked it, I don't think, these days, because it's all paperwork and admin, isn't it? Isn't it sad? It's very sad. And, the, and generally speaking, the best teacher on the staff would be the head teacher. And they're, stu- as you say, they're stuck in an office just doing paperwork, which is a shame, instead of being amongst the children and spreading it about, you know. Have you got an ambition left at all? Uh, Have you done it all? I, I've nearly done it all, I suppose. I mean, I would like, I would like to do something on television uh, live. I would like to do another live variety type show on TV when, when the, all, the, all the sparks are flying. That would be brilliant. And, and I think we need one. And if I'm not the host of it, I'd like to just be on it. Yeah. I mean, something like the London Palladium, literally. That would be brilliant. Yeah. yeah, if we could just do that, that'd be nice. Well, talking of openings and shows, Tom O'Connor, thank you very much indeed for joining me on this new series of the Geraldine Jameson interview. I couldn't have chosen a better guest to get the programme on, on its way. Thanks. Come back again soon. I will, Geraldine. Bless you, Al. Thank you. Fellow went to Liverpool Echo. He said, uh, "Want to put an advert in?" Folks said, uh, uh, "Yes." He said, uh, "How much do you charge for an advert?" He said, "It's uh, ten pound an inch." He said, "That's too dear." That. He said, "Why? What are you advertising?" He said, "A forty-foot ladder." <laughs> so, There'll be lots of that. And the nicest thing about it, of course, is the show is, is coming to you straight from Merseyside, the heart, of, the heart and the home of, of the finest humour in the world. Isn't that right? Yes. I, I was doing a show, uh, it was one of these promotions, you know, for, for the, like the tourist board of Merseyside, and they said, will you come along and talk to all these business people and what have you who are coming into the town and, and put the word out. And we were doing a show in a hotel not a million miles from here, and I was talking about all the funny things I'd seen in the clubs. In fact, I might tell you some of them later, but I was talking to this bloke, he said, you know the latest one that's happened here? I said, no. He said, you know the Adelphi Hotel? I said, yeah. He said, they've got a 20-foot chandelier in the ballroom. I said, yeah. He said, two fellas pinched it. <laughs> I said, what? He said, no, they actually come along to the... And they said, we've come to clean the chandelier, like, yeah, you know. <laughs> and instead of people saying, well, are you going to climb up and brush it? 
They said, we have to get it down. So, four porters <laughs> helped them down with this chandelier, see? And they took it away on the back of a wagon, this 20-foot chandelier. And I said, well, somewhere in a little council house in Cantrell 5... <laughs> This great <laughs> and when somebody presses a switch, the whole street goes dim. You can imagine. I mean, where else in the world could you find people like that? We're brilliant, aren't we, around here? I mean, it's true. During the course of the next, what, 60 minutes, I'll try and explain to anyone who's not from Merseyside just how wonderful you and I are. And, and I'll, do, I'll do it gradually. I'll start with the ladies. I mean, where else in the world could you find ladies like the ladies of Merseyside? Aren't they wonderful? All the fellas, isn't it true? They've got the world's most wonderful women. They've got this great way of looking at life. They're always positive, aren't they? Girls round here. Not the lady who said, uh, me real shoe size is four. <laughs> but I'm wearing sevens because four's eight. <laughs> but I was very lucky. I've met people like that. I've worked with people. And some of the, some of the funniest ones in my life have been other entertainers. Because, I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky to come from round here and get a break on the stage. And I, I, I always, I'm always amazed when you see brand new and all kinds of different comedians on Merseyside. And if you think about it, all the, all the comics who've made a name from this area, they're all different. There aren't two the same. You wouldn't say, oh, well, they're running them off now on a jig and they're all totally the same. And, I mean, count all the fellas who've made it, your Tarbucks and your, your, your Arthur Askeys and your Ted Rays and people like that. There's at least one and probably two or three more, each of those, somewhere in Liverpool. I mean, one of my favourite comics of all time, he's still working, is a bloke called Jackie Hamilton. And... Uh, Anyone who's seen Jackie or anyone who's listening now who knows him, he's the funniest guy you've ever seen. And uh, I heard a legendary story. This could only happen to Jackie Hamilton. Uh, they were filming a couple of episodes of Tenko near Southport, you see. Now, you remember Tenko, the series, a Japanese prisoner of war? And, and they're looking for extras because it's too expensive to bring them up from London. So they, they rang up a local agent and they said, is there anyone in the union who can play an extra in Tenko? And Jackie's quite bonny, you know. He must be getting onto like the 16 and 17 stone mark now. He's a bit like a pair. And Jackie turns up, you know, 17 stone, to be a Japanese prisoner of war. And <laughs> they've got him behind the wire, you know. He's got the shorts on, like the black pumps and the big stomach. <laughs> White as a sheep, middle of the jungle. And, <laughs> and the director comes up and he said, You! He said, What? He said, you can't be a prisoner of war, that shape. And Jackie said, I was only captured yesterday. <laughs> the Mill Shop, Tinwald Mills. Now open Sundays, 2 till 5pm. Take a fresh look at Tinwald Mills, St John's. 